You are listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 98. Today we're asking the question, what can we learn from the Harwood experiments? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's Drew Ray. I'm here with David Proven. We're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. So before we ask what we can learn from the Harwood experiments, David, I guess we've got to ask, what the heck are the Harwood experiments and why are we talking about them? Yeah, slightly different introduction, Drew, but um, I guess if I go back to my undergraduate psychology degree in the 90s, uh, we learned a lot about Kurt Lewin. Uh, we were taught a lot about Kurt Lewin and his, I guess, his his ideas around change management and his general field theory of how groups of people interact with each other. And so it was really popular in psychology, I think, in the 90s to learn a lot about it. And we don't hear a lot about it today, but a close colleague of mine, Ralph Shreve, he hasn't come through the safety science academic world. He's come through organizational development, uh, individual development, and change leadership uh, schools. And Kurt Lewin's work is still very heavily referenced in that field. So I thought it was a great opportunity just to bring it into the Safety of Work podcast and have a bit of fun with the experiments. So I didn't actually answer your question. The experiments themselves were a series of applied research studies done in a single manufacturing facility in the US starting in about 19, starting in 1939. So this organization and this site had what they considered to be a major problem with productivity and employee turnover. The managing director of the company was a also had a very strong academic bias and went on to complete a PhD or had just recently completed his PhD and so invited the university to come and help him solve his problems. So this is sounding very similar to the Hawthorne experiments. So I think there are a few, uh, and and this would have came come, come after that, but uh, I guess there is some of this real, it seemed to happen in the first half of last century where the universities and industry were I don't know, Drew, maybe in some ways more tightly coupled and, and industry did look to to the universities to help them solve their problems. So, yeah, the Hawthorne experiments was one of the famous pieces of work as well. So is there anything that you'd like to talk about around these studies before we get right into the paper itself? Um, I guess we, we've talked a bit on the podcast before about organisational science. If you're sort of coming into safety, there's a few different directions. You can come in from engineering, you can come in with psychology, and then there's sort of several different approaches to management. Is there anything to sort of say particularly about this organisational science approach to management? I don't think I've got anything uh, specific to say, Drew. I really like some of the work in, in the organisational studies field because it is specifically trying to understand how organisations function. Um, and organisations are a special sort of group dynamic because there's sort of formal and informal structures at play. So I think... I think the field that's specifically trying to understand organizations directly is a very useful field for managing safety with inside the companies that our listeners work in. So, so we're not actually going to study a paper, we're not, we're not going to talk directly about a paper that emerged from these studies. Like a lot of these organizational research, it's kind of hard to find one particular paper that the authors themselves actually produced that gives you a good view of what happened. As I understand it, sort of most of what we know about the studies really comes from 
people talking about the life of Kurt Lewin and his contributions and how he went about things rather than sort of directly from his published work, even though the work itself was so influential. Yeah, I think because this work was being done on behalf of the organisation directly to solve organisational problems, that was always the primary focus. And there is, there is no single kind of published piece of work uh, that covers all of these experiments. And you're right, Drew, it, it appears as though in 1969, Marrow, who was the managing director of the facility for over four decades, or of the company for over four decades, I guess, published a book. And there was a chapter in that book on the, oh, I cha- published a book on the the life and work of Kurt Lewin uh, because they, were, they became very close friends. Uh, and there was a chapter in that book that basically from the managing director of the plant's perspective told the story of all of these experiments. But we did, I didn't have a copy of that book. Actually, Drew, I've just gone on and found a secondhand copy. So I'll have it shortly. But what we did do was find a paper, the paper and the paper, look, well, I'll introduce it now, Drew, that. The paper is titled Kurt Lewin and the Harwood Studies, The Foundation of Organisational Development. The author was Bernard Burns, at the time was at the University of Manchester, but is now a professor in organisational change at the University of Stirling. The article was published in the Journal of Applied Behavioural Science in 2007. And uh, Bernard Burns, he's, I I did a bit of uh, looking, Drew, because I hadn't come across him before, but he's published a number of books on change management, strategic change management, and he seems to have a popular book titled title simply Managing Change, and it's now in its seventh edition and seems very widely sold. So in terms of this article, I guess we can trust that Burns is familiar with the field, knows what uh, the contributions are that Lewin made to the field. And you and I have both read around this topic a number of different uh, biographical stuff about the study. My my first instinct was to look up criticisms of the Lewin-Harwood studies just to see what was out there. Well, let's talk about, let me introduce who, who Kurt Lewin was, and then let's let's go straight into those. There's a couple of limitations of what we're going to talk about, and then we'll talk about, you know, some of the key experiments and and what we can practically learn from it. So I guess, Drew, um, Kurt Lewin was, it was a German Jew. He immigrated to the US in 1933 at the time to escape the rise of fascism. And I guess his early, it was, he always seemed to be a humanitarian. Uh, those who've written about it, and he believed that the human condition could only be improved by resolving these social conflicts like racial, religious, industrial conflicts. And his view that he held, I guess, all the way through his life and career was that this resolving these social conflict was was achieved through the facilitation of group learning processes that involved democratic participation so that individuals could understand restructure their perceptions of the world around them and kind of um, contribute to decisions that impacted on their lives. So his focus of work was never the individual, but always the group. So he started off as an academic. He got called in to do these this work by Marrow, sort of starting off with one just short trip that then basically evolved into almost a lifetime of work. No, more than a lifetime, because the studies continued for sort of several generations of scholars after Lewin's contribution. But all the sources seem to say that it kicked off when Marrow, who ran the Howard manufacturing plant, called Lewin out to have a visit and give some advice. Um, The two guys had already met before. Lewin, when he was doing his own PhD, had talked to Marrow. So Marrow was obviously a fairly scholarly type plant manager. They were good friends. And Lewin had this opportunity to contribute to some of the problems that the plant was experiencing. And I guess it should be fairly easy to imagine. We're talking uh, 1930s, rural Virginia. They've opened up a new plant, presumably because local tax incentives or whatever makes you want to open a plant in the middle of rural Virginia. 
but they can't get hold of any expert workers because you know, new plant, no one's got experience in operating in this sort of manufacturing. Uh, so, you know, 300 plus workers, but very few of them have actually done this type of factory style production work before. And most of the workers are young women, first job, low productivity compared to what management was expecting of them. Yeah, Drew, just some, a little bit of extra context. You're right. So, so out of one of the major, out of any of the major industrial locations in the US at the time, and just to add some context to the challenge that they faced, this was also a time when when World War Two was was starting, I guess in '39, and so that changed the labor market dramatically in the United States. And also, just for again for what it actually meant. So when they got all of these trainees who had never worked in these factories before. They, after 12 weeks of training, they would only produce about 50% of the volume that apprentices would produce in industrial hubs in or industrial centers in, in the rest of the US. So had, there was a dramatic productivity challenge, which initiated all of this work. And at the same time, because I guess there wasn't a long history of employment in these types of industries, the employee turnover was significant. So most of many of the recruits would leave before they'd even finished their 12 week training period. So it's not just that the workers are new, but the, the, the management of the plant sort of thought they knew what sort of productivity they could expect out of new workers, and they weren't even getting that. The workers were coming in, being below what they expected, and then leaving before they, or, or being washed out before they finished the training. So this was really, I guess, I guess I don't even know how to describe these, these studies, whether it's action research, whether it's applied research. How would you, how would you characterize this set of experiments? I, I think what we would call them today would be quasi-experiments. But one of the reasons why we don't know what to call them is the method didn't exist. <laughs> and so that's your Lewin's big contribution. He's actually inventing this way of doing research that has got a lot of the form and style of an experiment, but it's not being done in lab conditions. It's not being done in carefully controlled conditions. It's being done out in the wild in an active factory with real workers trying to directly address real problem. So, you know, your dependent variable in the experiment is the productivity at the factory. Yeah, which is, which is you're right, Drew. So we didn't have so much of a, a language in, in acad academia around this industrial, industrial research, although it did come after things like the Hawthorne experiments and things like that. But, but I guess the protocols that they designed for this, you know, would be considered relatively robust contemporary research methods for this type of work. So they typically, in all of these experiments we'll talk about, had experimental and control groups. They came up with some objective measures of performance. Uh, they maintained verbatim transcripts of of some of the meetings and 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 data for sort of transparency and analysis. So they were trying to take, I guess, as much of the laboratory experimental design into their fieldwork. Yeah, it's f funny, David. I started off when I was first reading this, just feeling really critical towards the methods they're applying. I was thinking, these are not fair tests. Their control groups are heavily loaded to fail and their main experimental groups are heavily loaded to succeed. And then I had to just sort of stop and check myself and realize, hold on, they had control groups. <laughs> and there's so much like stuff that calls itself research, even today, that doesn't include any sort of controlled comparison. And these are the people who are pioneering this methodology. So they, they, they really are trying not just to improve the factory, but to improve the factory in a way that has sort of built-in tests of its own credibility and built-in tests of their ideas so that they can claim some sort of generalizable results afterwards. They can take to other people and say, look at what we did. This is why it worked. Here's the general principle we can take into 
other factories and other work. Yeah. So, so Drew, I think it's a really good point. And, and, I'll, and I'm sure, well, I intend to say it a few times during this podcast that the context here, this is 80 years ago. So when we're talking about about this, we you know, try and try and think through this podcast not necessarily with your own lens now in 2022, but your 1939 lens that you will be uh, putting over what we're going to talk about. David, this is my favourite indicator of the time. When we're doing research today, we use so many like euphemisms. We talk about your know, safety, climate, and your know, organisational culture, and measures of work satisfaction. These people are measuring things like worker aggression towards management. <laughs> it was, was a simpler time with simpler language. <laughs> yeah, and and some and simpler re- and in many ways simpler research designs. And I think we'll we'll talk about that at, at the end. They just got in there and and ran some experiments, and it was it's kind of cool. It's kind of cool what they did. So should we jump in with like some of the actual experiments? Yeah, so we're going to talk about five uh, group decision make, and and these are titles. And and I think the last thing I'd say before we jump in, Drew, is is I guess we're going to talk about five different experiments, but Burns, who authored this paper, said we really need to think of these as a as as one long study because it was done in the same organisation, and the second study was done after the first study, the third after the second, and so because they were trying to solve operational problems, each study built on kind of what they'd learnt and and what had happened at the previous one, but also the previous study had kind of changed the starting point for future studies. So you know we remember these are five. Five studies conducted between 1939 and 1947 in the same single manufacturing plant. And I guess one very last thing before we go into the studies themselves, Lewin's own principle for these studies, and this is, I think, is a direct quote, no research without action, no action without research. And that's where the idea of action research came from, is the purpose is each study is going to lead to a change in the plant, and each change in the plant is going to be something that we are studying to work out its effectiveness. So it's a constantly evolving cycle of make a change in a way that you can evaluate it and lead to the next change. Theorize a bit, lead to the next change. Theorize a bit, lead to the next change. And so, Drew, let's let's so let's let's dive in and talk about the five the five experiments. So the first one is about group decisions, and I guess what what a, at the time that this I guess that this research kicked off, or, or Lewin had received the invitation from Marrow to sort of come to this plant in Marion in, in Virginia and, and kind of help help with these operational challenges that he had. Lewin had been researching the effects of autocratic and democratic atmospheres on groups of children in school settings. So looking at the the atmosphere, or I mean, this this was the term at the time for culture in organisations. So I think the first vice president of safety in DuPont, Drew, in the 1920s, talked about the safety atmosphere inside uh, DuPont. So we're talking about autocratic or democratic atmospheres or cultures in groups of children and looked at the impact on, I guess, children's learning and, and found that the democratic environments uh, created better outcomes and for children. So kind of, and, and they sort of argued less, they were more productive, they were friendlier to each other when the teachers were kind of just telling them what to do. Sorry, as opposed to when the teachers were telling them what to do. So that was Lewin's starting point. So he thought, okay, well, let's maybe think about how this works in adults. So how this uh, this first experiment got designed is they thought, we'll, we'll get a group of our company's most productive operators We'll meet with them several times a week. So these are brief 30-minute informal meetings. We'll ask this group to discuss what their barriers are to increasing production further. And so they started discussing what their individual working methods are. This is the first time that these operators started sharing their working methods with each other. And then in doing so, it became clear that the same job was done very differently by different people. And so the group got to talk about why this was so, 
what the advantages and disadvantages were of their individual approaches and the approaches of others. And then they identified what changes the company's management could make to improve the productivity. And the company basically accepted all of those ideas that they came up with that the company could do to fix it. So Drew, that idea of getting a group of people together and talking about work as done and what's going well and not going well and what the company can do about it, 80-year-old idea? At least, but certainly it was novel for this particular company at that time. And possibly this indicates that this is just a lesson we need to learn over and over and over and over again in our organizations, which is that you don't get very far by telling your workers what to do without listening to them in return. Yeah, that was a little bit of my, I was, sorry, I I was a bit too subtle, Drew. That was my joke about the newness of learning teams in safety. Yes. Too subtle. I'll be more, I'll be more, uh, (laughs) more, more direct next time. So, so what they did, so they got these operators together. How do you do your job? We do it like this. We do it like this. I do it like this. Okay. What's good about what the way you do it? What's good about the way I do it? If the company changed certain things, what would make us better? Um, the company accepted all of those changes. The group then voted on whether they were going to increase their daily output and to what level they should set it at. So, you know, management basically just said to the workers then, okay, well, if we fix these things, what, you know, do you want to increase your output? And it's important at this time, all of the workers were paid piece rate. So they got paid based on how much they they produced. So they gave the workers the option, you know, do you want to increase the output? And over a period of five days, they voted to increase the output from 75 units per hour to 87. And then when they got that achieved, management asked them if they wanted to increase it any further. They said, yep, let's increase it to 90. And so over a five-month period, the performance of this experimental group compared with the other groups in the factory went from 75 units per hour up to 90, and no other group in the factory showed any other any significant increase in output. I mean, albeit that nothing was being done in any of those other groups different to normal operations. So, Drew, I guess then the conclusion of that study was that um, Lewin maintained that the ability of the group to make its own democratic decisions was the key factor. So, democratic, remember at the time where we're literally, I think, here talking about people voting, giving the group the opportunity to, to, to vote. And having that process where the group made its, made its own decision was the key factor rather than the discussions that took place. And so, to test this hypothesis... Uh, one of the subsequent researchers uh, in Lewin's team went on to compare the effectiveness of group discussions with group decisions. And what he did was hold meetings with two other groups of workers. And in both of those other cases, what they did was only discuss ways to increase productivity, but they didn't vote on whether they should do it. And I guess then the result was only a slight improvement in their productivity. So they weren't actually setting their own goals. So I think Drew, the conclusion is not just the sort of the group discussion that occurred, it was a lot of it was down to that involvement in goal setting process. Yeah, with 80 years of hindsight, it's really hard to untangle the different explanations for what was actually going on here. So I don't don't want to be sort of too critical. And and just to be clear, there has been a lot of criticism of this study because there are lots of different ways you can interpret when you select a group of the most productive workers to do this sort of study on versus other workers when the whole, this isn't really democratic because management's whole mission is to increase productivity here. You, The workers are basically voting amongst themselves to agree with what management is asking them to do. So all sorts of little nitpicks, but I think what's really important here is that the conclusion that was taken out of this study at the time was this ongoing idea that we still have in organizational studies, that worker participation in decision-making 
and actually giving workers some power over their both conditions and their goals is very effective in aligning workers with management expectations. You know, it seems like a bit of a paradox, but you give people more choice, they're more likely to actually willingly go along with what you are aiming for, as opposed to just dictating what the conditions are, in which case they're more likely to rebel. And I think even even more so now than then, Drew, with that, because I guess at this time, people were paid piece rates. So management had the definite goal to increase production, but workers benefited when production increased as well. Whereas whereas now today in many organisations where that particular payment structure doesn't exist, at least in the employment setting, then there's even less incentive for workers to align with management's productivity goals. Yes. And what we really don't know is whether given a free choice, those workers would have gotten rid of the piecework payment altogether and asked for a regular salary. Yeah, that would have been a different type of control group, I guess. So, so Drew, is there anything else you want to say? We got, we'll do some practical takeaways at the end about all these five experiments, but is there anything more you want to say about that before we move to the next? Just, just that it's hard to emphasise the novelty of creating these actual these separate control groups. So the idea of like the worker consultation and the measuring piece rates, that's exactly what was done in the Hawthorne studies. But the Hawthorne studies, we had no concept of comparing these to other groups, um, whereas this was set up with deliberate control groups. And the other thing that was novel was just this idea of thinking about the work, the conditions around the workers rather than what management actions. You know, the idea that we would solve the problem not by changing exactly what management did, but by changing the environment and the group dynamics of the workers was also very novel. Yeah, Drew. And so we'll, we mentioned we've mentioned the Hawthorne experiments a few times, and and so we're assuming r- listeners know what it is, but not not enough space in this podcast, uh, um, in this episode, but you'll be able to search it. But if there's a bit of interest in some of these, you know, earlier, you know, experiments, Drew, we can we can always do a future episode on on that study itself. Yeah. So for the purpose of this episode, just think of the Hawthorne studies as this, but done much worse. Yeah. 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 Turn the lights up. Turn the lights down. See what happens. So let's let's move on to so the second experiment they title self management. And so this is this is I guess how the individual behaves. How individual behaviour is a product of of the group, not not more so than a product of the individual. That's kind of this broad idea that Lewin started work on what he called field theory in 1917, and he kind of pro- proposed that group behaviour is shaped by this really intricate field, in inverted commas, of symbolic interactions and forces that not only affect groups group structures but modify the individual behavior. So this was central in his approach throughout his whole career in analyzing individual group and societal behavior. And he said, any changes in group behavior stems from changes to the forces within this field. Um, and he went on to talk about force field analysis with his uh, with his plan change process about unfreezing, moving and, and refreezing organizations. So you have this idea that you know there's this complex dynamic that exists uh, around a group that influences the behavior of the group. Anything introductory, Drew, you want to add before we talk about the experiment? Just that in, in practice, I, I think what he's really talking about is almost like the idea about the way you run in a marathon. That you know, in a marathon, each individual person's effort is their own effort. You don't get the same sort of like drag you get when cyclists are racing. But the pace you're able to go at is still subtly affected by all the other people around you. It's much easier to run at the pace of the group than to run faster or slower than the pace of the group. And so that's sort of the idea that he's testing out here is that if management sets the pace versus letting the workers have some way to collaboratively set the pace, then 
even though each worker is working individually, still that sort of field around you is what influences your, your individual behavior as part of that group. Yeah. So, so what, what this experiment involved is they, they got a group of workers and they tried to lower management's control over how fast they worked and, and increase the workers' control. So they gave workers these hourly pace cards. So workers could decide every hour how much they wanted, you know, how, how, at what pace they wanted to work. Uh, and that then obviously, you know, added up to their daily work rate. So, I mean, workers, like I said, were on peace rate. So they had a lot of uh, motivation to, to do more work. And when they were given this opportunity to, to set their hourly pace themselves, their, their output increased from 67 units average per hour to 82 units and stabilized at that new level. And the control group remained unchanged. Now you kind of you kind of go. This is kind of interesting, Drew, because I go if if a work group has the capacity to go from sixty seven to eighty two per hour, then there was this idea that leadership should just tell the other group to just do eighty two units per hour because clearly it can be done. But this experiment, I guess, what one of the conclusions of this experiment as they said is that uh, telling workers that this is the pace we want you to work at doesn't lead to, I guess, that individual or that group adopting that goal as their own. Yeah. So so Lewin, part of Lewin's theory was that there were forces that pushed production in the other way. So you've got the obvious incentive that you get paid more when you produce more, but you know, no one is going to work like absolutely, absolutely flat out constantly. And one of the things that you do to work out what's like a reasonable amount of work to be doing a reasonable pace is you see what everyone else around you is doing. And so if you're working faster than someone else, that might tend to bring you a little bit slower because you see their pace as reasonable productivity. Um, or you might you know, have a really rational fear that if we start producing 80 units an hour, then management is going to adjust the minimum target. And the minimum target is now going to be 80 units an hour, and we're not going to be able to meet that. So often there's these like subtle perverse incentives as groups interact that can bring things down. And so what he was trying to do was introduce a group mechanism that could sort of subtly push the group in the other direction, almost like a group nudge to work, work faster, um, to like sort of encourage their best interest towards that incentive of producing more and getting paid more. Yeah, I was talking to a group of underground uh, plant operators and, uh, and they said that, they said, oh, do you know what our reward is for a month of record production? That that amount becomes the next month's target. So it was very cynical. You know, they actually didn't want to push too, too, too hard because then, yeah, you're right, Drew. That just you know, that constantly moving. So these these workers obviously knew that if tomorrow we wanted to work a little bit slower, that was within our control. So we can push a bit harder when we when we feel that we're able to, and then we we know that you know that's not going to create an expectation. Drew, this study also one of the conclusions which I thought was was um, important was that they said that look, this experiment is not independent of the style of personal leadership, you know, in in the day to day running of the plant, you know, in terms of these work group supervisors. So you can imagine even setting up these studies, you, you've got a you've got an operations leader, a shift supervisor or something who's facilitating this process with the work group, like telling them. You can hold these. You can have these pacing cards. How how do you want to work it? What support do you need? When are we going to stop? So you've still got a lot of coordination and facilitation happening by line management. And so what the researchers kind of said is we can't separate out this study from the influence of the actual leader, um, the style of personal leadership of these teams. So anything you want to add, Drew? Just are we sure we're talking about eighty years old? Because so far we've been through learning teams. We're now into Frontline leadership skills. Oh, it gets better, Drew. Yeah, that's the next experiment. 
So then they decided, so like we said, this progressed. So they said, oh, gee, we've really noticed it when we're doing this thing that, you know, it takes a certain type of leadership to facilitate these uh, democratic uh, work groups. So what we should think about doing is doing a leadership training experiment. So they sort of showed that this autocratic approach to management, and they referenced sort of Taylor's work, yeah, it it actually resulted, it didn't result in increased efficiency, but decreased efficiency. So there's been a lot of studies since Taylor's work on scientific management that was quoted by, uh, well, referenced in, in an article referenced in this paper um, by Rose in 1988, that showed that a lot of this autocratic style of leadership didn't improve productivity. Perhaps Marrow was aware of all of that work that had happened in the three decades or three and a half decades since Taylor's work and which why specifically went to Lewin, you know, we can never know. But I guess I guess they decided, look, we want to train our supervisors and see, run an experiment around that. And Drew, I, this, is the, this is the quote, okay? So at Harwood, supervisors tended to be appointed on technical competence and not on interpersonal skills. So I hear that every second week in organizations today. But their view was that, look, you know, organizations are cooperative systems. The supervisor needs to actually facilitate that cooperation. And if supervisors don't possess the interpersonal skills necessary to gain the cooperations of their subordinates, their peers, and their supervisors, then an organization can't be successful. So, Drew, do you want yeah, please jump in? Oh, I just wanted to jump in with how much I love the way they actually did this training. So the, this is a direct quote from the um, PhD student, the subordinate of Lewin, who was running these training sessions. And he starts off the training session by saying, what we'll try to do is make it not a lecture, not a class, but a clinic where we'll, we'll bring in the problems that are bothering us for discussion. So their way to train leaders was themselves to listen to those leaders and get them to come in and bring come, come along, talk about your problems, get used to a management style that involves bringing your problems to us and talking about them and workshopping them. Yeah, Drew, this was called out in, in the conclusions of this paper about the contributions to organizational development because role play role-playing was not a thing. This type of training was not a thing in organizations. This just did this just didn't happen. So to say we're going to do six training sessions for, you know, this was done between 1944 and 1945. We do six training sessions. We're going to bring supervisors in. We're going to ask them, you know, these three questions. You know, what's the most frequent problems that you meet? And not problems with machines or or the product, but personal problems that that bother you. What's your most dis, dis, difficult problem? And what's the most dis, distasteful problem that you meet? And I'm not even sure this was confined, Drew, to the workplace setting. I think these were, you know, what are your problems? These might have even been, what are your most, what are your problems in life? And what they're actually doing was sharing them amongst their peers. And there was, they use these, I guess, Drew, they use these for two um, role play exercises. And it was all designed around gaining insights into their own and other people's behaviors. It's all about seeing the world through other people's eyes and developing empathy and compassion and understanding. And I just think it would have been fascinating to think about doing this in the 1940s, this yep. type of thing with leaders. I mean, this is like super modern coaching. They um they do this role play scenario and then they're told, like, go away and between the sessions, try out the solutions that we've workshopped and come back to the next session and tell us how it went. So, you know, you could see this happening in organization right today in training frontline leaders. Absolutely. And by the sixth meeting, the supervisors appeared to have found the program effective in developing their interpersonal skills. They reported, and I guess this is a, I guess we don't know what, we don't have all the data, but they, they reported that they found it easier to deal with their superiors and peers and that their skills in getting cooperation of subordinates had significantly improved, as had their subordinates' productivity. 
So we don't know we don't have all the measures and all of the data, but they're basically saying that facilitating a process where people get to explore their challenges and of themselves and others, solve problems, try out new approaches, reflect on that, improves their their leadership and ultimately their team's productivity. Pretty cool. Yeah. So learning teams, frontline leadership. I think our next one is diversity training. Oh yeah, no, we're in diversity training now. So the fourth study is about changing stereotypes. So this is, we talk a lot about bias when we're talking about diversity and inclusion. So at stere- if we can think about stereotypes when we talk about it here as kind of like bias and or like bias in terms of diversity and inclusion. So basically what happened is, is the world's still at war, World War II, or just, I guess, in just in post-war. And so the plant has real difficulties recruiting and there's lots of young females, but this plant had a policy very similar to other plants around the country of not hiring women older than 30. And I've got to do some research and find out why that is the case, Drew, but we don't hire women over 30. Uh, well, they're just considered to be unreliable, David. Well, apparently, yeah. So, and not as hardworking as younger women. So apparently if you're over 30 and female, you're not, you're not, a, you're not a hard enough worker to come and work in a plant. So again, 80 years ago, just so the answer that they thought was, well, and this is quite an issue, well, let's, why do we have that policy? Let's get rid of that policy. Let's challenge it and let's recruit older women. But they got huge resistance from management at all levels. So the researchers, it seems, suggested this when they started seeing these problems and management at all levels of the business uh, said, no, they're less reliable, they're less productive than younger females. We're not going to do that. And so the researchers suggested, look, let's examine the cost of employing older workers and they agreed four criteria to evaluate this. They said, look, let's let's see, because if we can get older workers and we we don't lose too much productivity, maybe it's still a good option for us. So they they agreed four criteria. They said, right, okay, well, well we're, we're interested in productivity, the speed of learning new jobs, the level of sickness and absence, and the turnover rate. So they're pretty cool. They're pretty direct measures, Drew, like whether this is a good idea or not. You know, how fast do they work? How fast do they learn their new jobs? How often are they away and how how frequently do they quit? And this is basically every excuse someone's giving for not recruiting an older worker is one of those yeah. poor things. It's one of those poor things. You know? So basically when they collected the data, so they, I assume we don't know the method, but they assume they hired a group of older women and they started tracking that group of older 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 women against the, under, the over 30s and the under 30s in, in two separate data sets. And they found on, on all of these four measures, older workers outperformed the younger ones. So Drew... And then it gets a little bit more interesting because plant management got impressed by these results because they can see dollar signs in front of their eyes. And so they agreed to start recruiting older workers. So they said, great, let's do it. However, all of the female supervisors, all of the middle and frontline management remain steadfastly against the idea. So regardless of the evidence, going and showing them all the evidence, they still believe that older workers were slower and more prone to absence. And what they said was, yeah, it's just that the particular older workers that we've got, they're the good ones. They're the exceptions. In general, older workers still have all of these problems. Andrew, we did, we did, we did do an earlier, an earlier podcast on beliefs and changing beliefs. And we talked about vaccination, you know, pro and anti-vaccination. And we talked about data not being that compelling for individuals. And what was maybe a little bit more compelling was, was storytelling. So, Here's what these researchers did. Because they were, they were more focused on the group than the individual, they said, look, it's clear that we can't overcome this stereotype on an individual basis. So maybe we have to deal with this as a group uh, logic or a group, you know, something in the field and the dynamics around, around the group. 
So they held a number of meetings with these supervisors. And what they did is they presented the findings about regarding older workers, and they presented a range of people's views and discussed them. So they said, here's this view. Let's discuss it, the view that they're less productive. Here's the data. And by being allowed to compare prejudices freely with the data that's been gathered, the supervisors seemed to gain new insights and they became less hostile to the idea of hiring older workers. You know, apparently it was quite a slow process of change, Drew, but the supervisors did agree as a group to make a serious effort to recruit older workers. And apparently over the next two decades, because these researchers were on site for 40 years, Drew, like you said earlier, like generations of research, you know, basically these ideas had had kind of completely changed over 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 20 years. Yeah, and, and I, I think it's important to point out that it wasn't just that over that very long period of time that attitudes across the whole country changed. Uh, th- this plant then for, the, for that entire period of time was ahead of the rest of the US in terms of hiring older workers and they were exceeding productivity for that same reason. Yeah, I think it, they said they exceeded the, st- the standards of productivity of most plants in the nation over, over that whole period. But I guess Drew was that point of actually creating an opportunity for people to hear different views and perspectives, see some data, see the world through multiple lenses, and in the process, maybe let go a little bit of the strength of the lens through which they're viewing the world themselves, you know, just, just, by, just by sheerly, just by exploring, you know, alternate ideas and views. Yeah, David, I don't know about you, that's something that I constantly struggle with personally, uh, but it's obviously empirically true, is that letting someone express something that they're feeling or thinking can actually diffuse and weaken that feeling rather than strengthen it. And and we tend to, particularly when we feel strongly ourselves, do the exact opposite. We want to turn what they're saying into heresy or something that they should be cancelled over or something that they need to be corrected on. And it's not that they're right. They're obviously wrong. They're obviously prejudiced. I mean, this is almost bigotry against older workers, but still giving them space to express that in a safe environment when they can talk about and discuss it with the data is more effective in changing it than simply trying to shut it down and force them to accept the data. And also, Drew, this this overarching idea that, you know, this is a, it's about group dynamics. So an individual seeing that actually, oh, actually, not everyone in this group thinks exactly the same way as me. Maybe I've got to moderate, you know, my position to fall closer into line with the position of the group. So even, and then vote voting on what we'll do. So let, let's vote. Are we going to employ older people? And if more than 50% vote, then even those you know, people who have very outlying views will, I guess, part of belonging to a group is moderating your behavior to the norms of the group. Yeah, I, I, I don't have the studies in front of me, so take this with a little bit of a grain of salt. But but I think there's there, there's some evidence that the way the process sort of works is people who have those more reactionary views, if they're allowed, if they've been allowed to express those views, when it comes to actually the group vote, they'll sometimes change their vote and go the other way. So you know, I've been heard that I don't like the gays, I don't want the older workers working here. I think this is all wrong. Should we get rid of the discriminatory policy? Yeah, okay, I'll go along with the group and vote for it. <laughs> All they needed was to be heard, and then they're willing to do the thing that we want them to do. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good. I don't know that that, that research either, Drew, but um, I do play a role now that I'm outside organisations. I do play a role as just basically someone that uh, heads of safety in organisations can vent to when they want to, I guess, air frustrations about their organisation with someone outside of their organisation. And I think just having the opportunity to say what they really want to say and then get back to work is 
is helpful in its own. So, Drew, let's talk about the fifth uh, and and the last experiment, and then we we we'll uh, we'll wrap up with some practical takeaways. So, this last one was titled "Overcoming Resistance to Change," and this really, I, I guess, laid the groundwork for Kurt Lewin's uh, theory of planned change, which I guess. You know, even after he spoke about his 40 years later when Cotter talked about the, the eight, seven or eight step change process, which is used by all the big management consultants, you know, really came down to kind of the, this early work of, of Lewin. So, and basically where it stemmed from is they, the majority of grievances that were presented at Harwood seemed to stem from a change situation. So basically production workers' methods so the production work and the job tasks change several times a year, new technology, new process, new materials, new new product. So this was a big problem. So workers complained bitterly about being transferred off one job because we need you to go now work on this plant. And then now we need you to go and work on this job because they went from jobs that they knew well and they could do with a high degree of productivity and therefore make money in the piece rate to a job that they didn't know. They were probably slower at, they didn't enjoy as much and they made less money. So morale would plunge. And so they, they even talked about workers being reduced to tears, experienced machinists, you know, went on to another job for a period of time. Then when they went back to their previous job, they never got to their previous levels of output. And what the company wanted the researchers to help them with was, was there a way of introducing change that didn't lead to a decrease in productivity? And despite a number of ten, attempts um, that they tried to do change in different ways, um, Lewin's in the year that Lewin died in 1947, his researchers there basically experimented with a democratic participative approach to change, basically because everything that they'd learned about participative decision-making to do with production, they thought, well, how can we apply this uh, participative democratic approach to a change process? Anything you want to add, Drew, to the introduction? Well, I guess the first thing I find really interesting that I hadn't known before we started preparing for this podcast was this work is where the whole idea of resistance to change comes from. You know, prior to this work, no one had really conceptualized it in those terms, that when you're making a change, they will automatically have this resistance that you then need to diffuse or overcome before you can make the change. That whole like thinking about change like that comes from their work at Harwood. The second thing is this sort of wraps together all of those other bits. So the bit about needing to give people a voice and get them to be heard. The bit about getting them to actually make a group decision as ways of overcoming the change. So all those sort of previous studies lead up to this one. Along with the same sort of uh, concern I've always had in the background of this, which is none of this is really giving the workers a genuine choice. This is still all about really overcoming their group resistance in order to make the change that management wants. So in some sense, they've sort of got the illusion of choice that they're being listened to. They're being allowed to change other minor things. They're being allowed to talk about how the change will be implemented, but they're not allowed to stop the change. But still, that's enough. Letting them have some control, some autonomy, some voice, all reduces the resistance to the central change that needs to be made. I think, Drew, you're right. I think that I think there was a what needs to be changed and how it's going to actually work. And so as we talk about this in, in a moment, you know, management might have said, well, we actually need to introduce this new machine into the production process. But then work then how much the workers were involved in deciding, well, one person's going to stand here and they're going to do this part and then they're going to do this and then it's then the machine thing's going to go over here. So I think you're right. I think management was still trying to get its its change through and and there was different levels of involvement in the workers of exactly what that would mean for the workers. So Drew, I guess 
And so Lewin, I guess, first introduced this notion of resistance to change and talked about it as being predominantly a, a systems concept. So a, a fun, you know, a concept resistance across the group, not necessarily an individual's resistance. And also talked about how it affected both managers and employees uh, equally. So what we, they did in this experiment, so they, they were thinking, well, how can we identify and promote those forces that increase workers' productivity and reduce those that acted to restrain it? And we still talk now in theories of plan change about what are the things that you know in, enable the change and what are the things that kind of are barriers to to change. So that all came from here, the whole idea of barriers to change and that that all that all came came from this work. So they got four experimental groups, Drew. What they did is group one was the control group. And so any change to their work process was undertaken in the same fashion as normal. The workers were called into the office. They were told that changes were going to take place and they were given the opportunity to ask questions to clarify their understanding of what that meant for them. And this was very typical. You know, at the time, 1940s, US manufacturing management decided what workers did and workers were told what, what it meant for them. Group two, Drew, were given more detailed information and they're allowed to nominate representatives of the group to participate in designing the new jobs and setting new production rates. So, Drew, this is interesting. This study design might be the emergence of the workplace health and safety representative, or the um, in, or the you know, or the yeah, the IR representative of the work group. It's certainly the earliest I've heard of it. Yeah. So, so basically, they get to nominate representatives to represent them, and they get to work with management on the setting and then the rest of the group gets told what's come out of that process and in groups three and four all members participated in the design of the new jobs and the setting of new rates so basically they got the whole work group to do not just the representatives of the work group but everyone in the work group and I, what they what they concluded or what they found drew was that groups three and four achieved an increase of about 15 percent on their pre-change productivity so what was the productivity before the change and then What's the productivity after the change? So it even got better, even with the change process, it seems that their productivity improved. And this was sort of, they said it was sort of proportional to their degree of participation. So we don't know the results, but we assume that group two was, you know, maybe less than 15. And you assume that group one went backwards, like what was happening prior to the experiment. So little nugget, David, from the explanation as to why the participation works. So it's, it's not just about, oh, they feel good about being included. Their theory was that when you include workers in that design of the new methods and consult them like that, it increases their confidence and it's a sort of change undermines people's confidence. It makes them feel uncertain. And so the consultation works by making people feel like they're experts. And so they feel more confident in themselves, more confident in the change. And so that then makes them go into that new change as sort of like happier people who feel better, more secure in themselves, they're less likely to be sort of psychologically harmed by the change, which is what causes them to be. It's not just that they hate the change that makes them unproductive, it's that they actually feel worse about themselves that makes them unproductive. Yeah, and Drew, they also measured in this because I guess they measured what they called uh, aggression expressed against management. And um, I don't know how they measured this. I don't know whether it was whether it was actually a count of the num the physical assaults between <laughs> that took place on on management, but I don't know. But and it could well it could well have been something a, a direct measure like that. Again, remembering you know the, the time the time it was. Um, but yeah, what are your thoughts on on that as a, a measure? Uh, all I can do is just think of my own workplace and think, okay, so what actually happens when we have a change? Is people do feel uncertain? People do feel 
insecure and people gripe about how much they hate management. <laughs> so it's actually a pretty good measure, I think, of change. But we, would, we wouldn't call it that anymore. No, I'm just wondering if management sat down with the research and said, yeah, yeah, let's do this. Let's do this experiment. Let's try and make sure that we can maintain productivity when we make changes. And then someone pipes up and goes, hey, and by, by the way, can you see if this also makes the workers like, you know, punch us in the face less like, um, <laughs> or something? And they've added that as a measurement to the to the study. Um, yeah, so now, now I'm just picturing this plant with a little sign up the front, you know, days days since last assault against management. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah, so management get rewarded for not being assaulted and so they just go unreported. All right. So, Drew, so there are our five studies. Um, anything you want to sort of add before we go into some practical takeaways? So let's talk a little bit about the research itself. So Lewin sets out really quite clearly what I see as the tension between like academic research and industrial research, because he's, he's trying to look for social laws. Uh, he calls them sort of if-so relationships, hypothetical conditions and hypothetical effects. So they don't tell you what actually exists locally at a particular place or a particular time, like you're at a particular factory. So you've still got to do that job of diagnosis for any given place. You can't just say, hey, industrial democracy works, let's do it. Hey, this principle of change management works, just do it. You've got to know, know what the local problem is you're trying to fix. But if you can, in the process of trying to fix a local problem, find a general law, you can then take that law, test it out elsewhere, and have a sort of general principle, part of your toolbox that you can use in management. Um, so I thought he expressed sort of really well this different aims of local change versus research. And the people in his group sort of lived that ideal of shifting back and forth between industry and academia. You, Some of them went to work for the company for a while. Lots of them worked for the company for a while then and had big academic jobs elsewhere. It's really what we want in that working relationship is people moving between the two of them, not thinking, oh, this is the academic's job. This is industry's job. Let's not talk to each other. Let's insult each other rather than working out what our uh, sort of each appropriate role is in solving problems. Yeah, great, Drew. And maybe a few limitations. I'll kick us off and then it'll be good. So so a couple that were pointed out in, in this paper, that this was not an atypical manufacturing organisation um, given the time. So it was a greenfield site. It had a different workforce makeup in terms of new to industry and gender and experienced. It was in a non-traditional industrial hub in the United States, so a different location. So it, it, it was it was not a typical manufacturing organization at the time. And there's this, also this view that the organization was conditioned to respond well to participative management approaches. So even before these experiments, the CEO, Marrow, had, had spent the previous almost uh, five years interacting with Lewin, doing his own PhD. And so had there was ideas that the organization was already running quite a participative approach. And throughout the course of the experiments, um, as one experiment built on the other, the I guess the organization may have been being conditioned to increase productivity, the more participation, because that's what had happened in the past. A bit like the Hawthorne effect. But, but I don't think those criticisms invalidate the results. You know, the, the, the act of running these experiments in the organization is totally consistent with the philosophy that they're testing with the organization. You know, if involving your workers in a decades-long program of experimenting to improve worker conditions and participation and reactions to change, if workers respond positively to that, isn't that like proof of the whole theory? 
Well, yeah. I mean, it's what you're trying to what you're trying to prove. And if you're trying to prove that you know over a ten year period you can you can go from being fifty percent behind industry to consistently in front of industry, then um, I guess that's um, then that you know case case proved. I guess. So, Drew, are we right to do some practical takeaways? Yes, let's. Okay, let's do this. So, from the first study on group decisions, I've kind of said in your organisation, if you're doing learning teams, uh, which is kind of similar to what they did in 1940. It's one thing to be asked to participate in a learning team. It's a completely different thing to be given a genuine contribution to decisions that result during that learning team. So I guess what they learned in that study is that getting people just to be engaged in the discussion is nowhere near the same thing as getting people to be engaged in the decisions that result from that discussion. Yeah. So actively having the group make a decision rather than put forward suggestions seems to be um, the sort of key marker, but and they had measurable differences between those two strategies. Yeah, and just to just to see how novel this was at the time, I, I read a different paper in the preparation for this episode where they said that this was the first known instance of managers and workers talking together inside the plant, where managers got a chance to tell workers about what their productivity goals and targets and objectives and costs and all the costs were. And workers got to tell management what their problems and challenges were. And that was such a novel dynamic discussion process that it had to be facilitated by the researchers quite carefully. So, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, well done. Second one, David? Yeah. So from the self-management study, this idea of target and goal setting seems to be an intrinsic motivation process. So people have to believe that the goals are important. They have to believe that they're achievable. And it seems from, remember the pacing cards and that it's, there seems to be little point in setting other people's goals for them. You'll likely get the same result as not having any goals at all. So I guess this idea of if you are setting goals, objectives and targets in your business, facilitating a team-based goal setting process is probably more likely to get you to, to get to your goals. I, I think we there, there is an important contingency there, which is that these goals mattered to the people involved. This wasn't a performance appraisal, let me just set my own goals for the year. This is, we're setting a goal that matters to us because it affects what we get in our bottom line. And so maybe, I guess, Drew, maybe it, that's one thing for productivity now. Like I mentioned, it, it's different employment um, processes now. But I'd like to think in safety that, you know, there's a there's a benefit to the employees if if their workplace is safer and there's a benefit to the company. So having a process, and I'm not talking about, you know, set, setting injury rate goals, but, or maybe I am, I don't know. But I still think in relation to safety, you, you might be able to get that alignment of benefit to organization and to work group. Yeah, particularly if there was like a particular safety activity that everyone agreed was worth doing, having working together what the targets for that activity, how often it'll be performed, what's an acceptable way to that activity would seem to make a lot more sense than trying to set some arbitrary target and ask everyone to meet it. Yeah, I like that. So Drew, from the leadership training one, so my first practical takeaway is leadership is more than technical competence with the work that you're leading. And I did put a little like duh in there, like, cause, but we still talk about it. And, you know, having the capability in a leader to explore the world from other people's perspectives and to facilitate collaborative problem solving processes seem to be really important for team performance. Yeah, David, can I add another one there that I think is also a sort of duh, which is leadership training is about more than putting up PowerPoint slides to tell people how to be leaders. It's about modeling through the training, the type of leadership that you want them to exhibit. I love that, Drew. Yes, absolutely. So think of the role play for the experiment. From changing, so from the changing stereotypes one, 
So this idea that data alone may not be enough to change individual beliefs, but if you can facilitate a space for peers to discuss the data together with the the, the different, the diverse ideas and perspectives of the group around that issue, to let them gain exposure to these different perspectives, it, it may lessen their attachment to their single perspective and may allow the group to arrive at a kind of a new shared conclusion. I mean, because in this case, Drew, they took a group from unanimously one position to voting in favour of a different position. Yeah, over a long period of time, but still it worked. Yeah. And then the next one from their study is about overcoming resistance to change, is that if people are involved in the change decisions and given an opportunity to contribute in ways that build up their comfort and their confidence in their own expertise, they're less likely to resist the change, they're less likely to be hostile to management, they're less likely to feel bad themselves and distressed as a result of the change, decreasing their productivity. Andrew, I just added a general one outside of these these five because it, it sort of relates to Lewin's uh, field theory and, and a lot of these participative approaches in organisations. This idea of focusing on groups, not the individuals in organisations. So much of what we do in safety is, is about the individual. You know, we actually talk a lot about the individual and, and this idea that you know, it's the group dynamic that moderates the individual behavior. It may not be the individual that moderates the individual behavior in organizational settings. So how do we think in the in our approach to safety at a, at a group or team level, perhaps, as opposed to an individual? Don't any thoughts on that, or if you want to add any other practical takeaways? No, I, I would rather move straight from that to the question for the week about what can we learn from the Harwood experiments, which seems to be a heck of a lot, but it's all stuff we keep forgetting again. Yeah, Drew. I, I like the way that you race to that. And just for our listeners to know, every week we kind of, we ran out with, you know, trying to summarize the whole episode in one sentence. And if you've noticed, we both try and race to ask each other the question. <laughs> so well done, Drew, you got in this week. So look, I think what we'd learn, what we'd learn from this is, you know, very simply, like do less telling and more collaboration. Sounds simple, but just think through all your safety processes and practices and approaches. Like how can this be more participative uh, and less kind of autocratic? And then the second one, Drew, that I just throw in there, I think, is that applied research is not as hard as we might think. Like when you read through these five studies and what they did, they just went and did it. They thought, what's a problem that we're facing? How might we think about doing it differently? How might we set up an experimental group and a control group? How might we measure it and evaluate it? And and I guess, and, and then run it. So I, I guess this really motivated me a little bit more in the context of it shouldn't be that hard to do a lot of this type of work. David, I'll quickly throw in one important thing I think from this study is that this applied research wasn't just going out to a university and hiring them in as consultants. Most of this work was in the end done by people that the company hired themselves. They, they, they used people with research training as uh, em employees, sort of middle management change managers within the organisation. Um, and I think that's a model that we can still learn a lot from today is you don't have to go out to a university. You can just hire someone who's got that sort of thinking and that sort of attitude towards change improvement um, and bring them into the organization as part of the team. Yeah, great. Or, or, or they can come to you at, come to come to us at Griffith and Oh well if, if anyone would like to form a like 40 year collaboration where you <laughs> hire some of our PhD students and we continue to run studies with you building your organization over decades, yeah, I I'm in. I've still got 20 years of my career left. Perfect. There you go. You don't get an offer like that every day. So and I'll get involved in the interesting stuff. <laughs>
So that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organization. Join us on LinkedIn for discussion or send any comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com. 